As we looked at chapter 10 last week, we came to the beginning of an interesting story, and we saw that in the story, uh, there are these two main characters that are featured. Two men from two different backgrounds on two different journeys, but to the same destination. These two men, of course, we see in the text are uh, Peter, who is an apostle, and then we find a Roman centurion, a man named Cornelius. And these two men are making their way towards Christ together. They don't know it at, at the moment, but they are heading toward one another, toward ultimate satisfaction and ultimate joy in Christ. And they're making their way on two different journeys because they have two very different obstacles that they need to overcome, two very different hindrances that are keeping them from this full satisfaction in Christ. The first man, Peter, is really representative of, uh, of one group of people, and he comes from a Jewish background, and his his pedigree, his ability to keep the law, to say that he is a good person, that he's done things correct, that he's willing to take his time and make the right decisions and make his way through life in a way where he has created an identity around doing the right thing at the right time so that uh, when people come against him and say, hey, like, you know, I, why don't you do this? He can say, oh, I've never done that. I wouldn't participate in that. I've made sure I've covered all my bases. He has uh, this certainty about him. And we see that in his interaction in a vision that God gives him. But then we see the second man here, this Roman centurion, Cornelius, is one who has made his way through the ranks. He has accomplished quite a bit, but yet he was outside of the community of faith simply on the basis of his Gentile nature, that he was not a part of the covenant people. He wasn't a Jew, but he was a Gentile. He was a Roman uh, citizen, and he was someone who would have thought, like, okay, he's accomplished a lot, and so he's probably pretty satisfied. But he's made it through his life so many, uh, year after year, moving up the, the ranks within the Roman army. He's gone from being the, the guy who has to clean out, you know, the, the restrooms and the latrine, and he's the guy who has to take all the graveyard shifts and all of that, and now he is in command of a hundred men. He has great respect and authority and pride, but yet we see that he's out there searching because he's not satisfied with life. There's something more to it, he realizes. He's already at a spot where he could basically be on cruise control within his position of authority and uh, within the army there. But yet he knows there's something more. He's not satisfied. And so he's trying to make his way towards some satisfaction. And we are told in the text that he has pursued the Lord. He's, he sees that there's something about uh, the God of Israel that is appealing to him. And so he is described as a God-fearing man. He's described as one who tries to keep the laws that, they, uh, that God has set forth for his people, but he's, he's not a, a Jew. He hasn't become a Jew. He's still a Gentile, but he knows that there's something different there, and so he's on this pursuit. Now, the Jews and the Gentiles come from different backgrounds, and in, in the Old Covenant, what, the way that you would become a part of the covenant people would be you would become a Jew. A Gentile would become a Jew through circumcision and, and uh, being brought in through uh, kind of the rituals and ceremonies that are prescribed in the law, and then they would keep the law, and so they would work towards becoming like a Jew, keeping these ceremonial washings and, and dietary restrictions. But in this moment, in the beginning of chapter 10, God gives Peter and he gives Cornelius a vision. If, if you recall uh, last week, Peter is, uh, we, we looked at this, Peter is there and he's upon the, the roof waiting for his lunch and the Lord brings down this uh, 
he brings down this, this, he gives him this vision, but he brings down a tent, or not a tent, like a kind of a, a sheet, a vessel that is holding all of these animals. And the way that it's, the animals are described is it's meant to communicate that these are all sorts of animals. There are especially unclean animals, things that they would not be allowed to eat. You know, snakes and, you know, pigs and weird stuff like that all over the place. Up in this sheet mixed in with the, the good animals that are considered to be clean. And so the Lord speaks to Peter and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's, and, and Peter's response is like, oh, no, 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 I would not do that. I've never done that. In fact, ever since I was young, I've never had a unclean thing enter into my body. His, his point there is that I'm staking my identity on the fact that I am set apart and that I wouldn't participate with those unclean things. And then God responds back to him and he says, Peter, what, what I have, have made clean, you shouldn't call unclean. And this happens in a, in a repetition uh, three more times, or, or I guess two more times, for a total of three times. And then it's gone, and Peter's not really sure what's happening. And then God has given this vision to Cornelius, and be like, hey, you got to go get uh, Peter. He's staying with this guy, Simon, down by the sea. Go grab him. So he takes him, and he sends his men out there to go get them. They come, and Peter is trying to figure out what's the deal with this vision. Right when he's trying to figure this out, these men show up. And the Holy Spirit tells him, like, these guys are here to see you. Go down and see them. Don't delay. And so he goes down, and he gets the word, hey, like, Cornelius sent us out here to get you. We're supposed to bring you back with us. This is what we have recorded for us in verse 3, or not 3, excuse me, uh, 23. Uh, Here's what what it says. Um, He invited them in to be his guests. Peter invites these Gentile men into the house to be his guests, which wasn't, uh, and Peter's a guest here, so it wasn't super um, remarkable, but it's showing that he's kind of loosening up here a little bit, that the Lord's working in him. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So Peter understands, like, hey, like, I'm, I'm supposed to go with these guys. The part of, part of the vision is making sense to him, and so he's on his way now to uh, Caesarea. And so as we come to the, the text this morning, these guys are actually on this physical journey now towards one another. Peter making his way to Caesarea to meet Cornelius, and Cornelius is there prepared to receive, like, I don't, I'm not really sure what God is doing, but I've been praying. I've been seeking him. Cornelius isn't a Christian. He doesn't know Jesus, but he's been seeking. Here's what we find recorded for us in our text this morning. In verse 24, Peter and the boys on their way back from Joppa, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. See, previously, the the stories were about Cornelius and Peter separately. We had these two recordings uh, of of the Lord speaking to them through visions and their actions and response. But now, the story is bringing them together. Luke records for us that these two men are being brought together into a personal encounter. Peter doesn't really know, why am I making my way out here. He has rough ideas, but he's not completely sure. He's on his way. Here's what happens. Cornelius is there. He's expecting them. He's sent these men, of course. Uh, Later, we find out that there are about six men that he sent out. He's expecting them, and he called together his relatives and his close friends. I want you to see here that Cornelius' heart, he does not, he's not a Christian. He knows there's something more to life, And he believes that as God has told him, hey, you need to get this guy, Peter, here, and he's going to tell you what you need to hear. He's he's got a message for you. Cornelius is expecting that because God has called Peter to give them a message, that people should hear this message. That the gospel, Cornelius doesn't know he's going to hear the gospel, but but what he's going to hear is going to be important. And so he's anticipating this. And he knows that it's going to be something of huge importance. 
And so it's not only going to be important for him, but it's going to be important for everybody who he loves. And so he gathers together everybody, his relatives, his close friends. Earlier, the description of Cornelius was said that he was one who led his household in pursuing God. He's like, this is important. You guys need this. I'm searching after this and I'm searching for fulfillment. And he's out there telling them like, guys, the corporate ladder that you're trying to climb, it's going to end in you being not satisfied. So there's something else that I'm trying to help you understand where you can get satisfaction, where you can find your identity. Cornelius is searching. He doesn't know, but he knows that what everybody else is after is not going to be enough. It's not going to satisfy. And so he knows that God is bringing a message. He's like, I'm going to get everybody together because they need to hear whatever this message is. This is the posture that we want to have when we come into contact with the world as Christians. We want them to understand that like, there's a, a message that they need to hear. I know what you're after. I know what you're longing for. I know the things that you're trying to satisfy yourself with. In this, the message of the gospel is what we want them to hear. This is the posture that we want to have ourselves as Christians when we come to the word of God. Where we're like there, we're ready. Like, what is, the, what is the word? Lord, what are you wanting to speak to me? I know you're on your way. I know that you've promised to bring this message to me when I get into to the word. When I read my Bible, I know you want to speak to me. What is it that you want to speak? And the posture that we should have is one of expectation. Now, verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Right? So this could kind of be understandable from some perspective. Like Cornelius gets his crazy vision, and he's like, the way that God brings uh, his message traditionally to people is through like, these, this divine revelation, and, and often through angelic messengers where they're showing up and, and they are uh, heralding the word of the Lord. This happens at, at the birth of Christ. This happens at other points throughout history. And so here, I'm sure Cornelius being one who is studied is like, oh, like God's bringing me a message. So this guy rolls up and he's like, this is the word from the Lord. And so he, he throws himself on the ground. He treats Peter as like he's like this angel, basically. He falls down at his feet and worships. And Peter brings an important correction to him. The, the first way that we want to look at this correction is through the lens of worship and our worth. There's another point in Scripture in which this happens in the book of Revelation when John is receiving revelation from the Lord and an angel shows up and John gets down and like worships and the angel's like, no, like I'm not to be worshiped. Like get up, get off your feet. You got like, this is not right. Because God is the only one who's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so there's no, as a messenger, you get none of the glory. It's God's word that points us to him. We don't get to receive God's glory or receive his worship, but we are messengers like Peter. We are one people who take the message. We communicate it. We respond to the one who has given us this wonderful message. It's only God who is worthy. And so Peter makes this important correction to this man, Cornelius, Right? And that had to be an incredibly uh, humbling thing there for Cornelius to do because he's a man of great authority. He's already risen through the ranks, and so he's used to receiving other people's respect, not acting in humility. But yet it kind of demonstrates that he's, he's willing to hear. He's ready to receive. And Peter it just helps him understand, like, look, I'm the same as you. Get up. I'm, you don't need to, one, you just don't need to worship uh, me because only God is worthy of worship. But the second thing I want us to see here and I want us to notice 
is more in line with the text. And maybe this is something from Peter's perspective that was uh, something that the Lord was working in his heart. You see, in that time and in that culture, because the Gentile people were outside of uh, the covenant, they were outside the nation of Israel, many of the, the Jews developed uh, different terms that they would apply to the Gentiles. They would, they would uh, often call the Gentiles dogs, those Gentile dogs. And they were called dogs because uh, the dogs in that culture were much different than how we treat dogs in our culture. Like, you know, they don't live in like strollers and purses uh, and like sleep in our beds and things like that. They were scavengers that ate like dead bodies. That was the, the dogs that were kind of survived, were in that day. There wasn't like this domestication of, of pets. And so the dogs were really wild creatures that were just eating all sorts of nasty stuff. And so dogs were, were considered unclean. And so what Peter is doing in this interaction, by not allowing this man to humble himself before Peter, he's not only saying God's the only one who's worthy of worship, but he's demonstrating that he's willing to interact with a Gentile, but then also elevating the status of the Gentiles above that which culture says, that they, the Gentiles are considered dogs. He's like, he says specifically, I too am a man. You and I are made in the image of God. We are both men who God has created. You're not lower than me, and I'm not lower than you. We are equal because of how God created us. And so even in Peter's interaction here, although he's also correcting for worship, he's also recognizing the humanity of this man. He's recognizing that this person is not beneath him. He's not saying, oh, the Jews are way better than the Gentiles because God is beginning to work something in his heart. He's beginning to highlight this. Now here's the other remarkable thing in verse 27. It sounds quick to us, but it's, it's huge. And as he talked with him, we read, he's talking with Cornelius, he went in. He went in. This would have been like the worst. The Jew entering into the house of a Gentile, would have been like, nope, didn't happen. If you recall back at, at the um, night that Jesus is on trial, and they take him in the praetorium, this Roman area where Jesus is kind of put on this kangaroo court, it says that the Jews, they don't enter in because they don't want to be defiled. They're like, we're going to stay outside. Even though they're trying to kill Jesus, they're like, we're going to stay outside of this thing. We don't want to enter into that because there's probably leavened bread in there and all these things that would ruin us during the Passover. And Peter's like, I'm going in. For him to make this step was huge. He's making a choice to be with these people. And so he goes in, he has this conversation, and he finds this huge gathering of people. And he's like, what in the world's happening here? Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But... God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean, so that when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. So Peter says, you guys, you guys know what's up. You know the deal. You know it's considered unlawful for me to be here, for a Jew to be in the house of a Gentile. So why the heck is he even there? Why does he even show up? Well, he tells him, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, what God revealed to him is starting to click. It's starting to make sense. He didn't get it at the moment, and he didn't even get it when they showed up at the house. But as he is on this journey, this is starting to, to click for him. He understands that when God called him to rise, kill, and eat. And he had these objections multiple times. 
that God wasn't trying to test him, but was trying to show him, I'm initiating a new phase. I want more people to meet Jesus. He's helping him highlight all of the the Old Testament prophets who spoke about the integration of the other nations that were not Israel. I'm beginning that. I'm sure he recalls the voice of the Lord speaking to him again and again. What God has made clean, do not call common. Having that echo in his head as it did those three times over and over as he made his way. You see, God has prepared Peter. He has brought him on this journey. He's helped him to lay aside his pride of being identified as a Jew, his pride of being identified as one who keeps the law, who does everything right and correct and perfect. Because when he did this, all of a sudden, everybody else is going to be looking at him and being like, I can't believe you're doing that. They're going to be judging him. They're going to be saying, oh, you're failing. You're a failure, Peter, because you are interacting with these other people. He was going to be someone who would be marked as someone who is numbered with the unclean. Marked as someone who associated with those who are broken. You see, but Peter understands that this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He came and was, although he was clean, he willingly made himself unclean, taking our sin, our shame at the cross so that we might be made clean. We might have his righteousness. We might be made whole again. You see, Peter understands the heart of the gospel. He understands why he can do this because he sees that this is what Christ has done for him. He's not trying to to live correctly. He's not trying to... he, He stopped worrying about other people's opinions because he's been changed. And it's only the gospel that does this. It's only the gospel that helps us have our identity so tightly wrapped around Christ that when other people carry accusations against us, when they make false statements against us, those things don't have to stick. They don't have to impact us. They don't have to make us worried or cause us to fear because it's ultimately Jesus who has given us a new identity, a new life. And when we trust in Christ for salvation, God is always happy with us because of Jesus of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Peter has been prepared for this visit, for this Gentile uh, integration by staying with Simon the Tanner. So he's been around like dead animals for a couple days as Simon the Tanner's trying to uh, create some nice leather, which I really appreciate. And then There's also this vision, and then he's got the Gentile men who are staying with Simon, and he's on the way thinking about this vision. He's got now this conversation with Cornelius, and now he's finally entered into the house. These increasing levels of intensity. But he still hasn't heard about the vision from Cornelius. And so he's like, look, when you called me, I came without objection. What Peter's saying there is like, I didn't show partiality and say like, well, you guys are Gentiles. He's like, I came. So like, what's the deal? He wants to know, what is it? What, why is it that you sent for me? So we pick up in verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, We are all here in the presence of God. 
to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Cornelius, he breaks it down. He's like, here's the deal. Pete, here's what you want to know. Tells him his vision. Here's what happened. He says, I'm praying. I'm seeking the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask him, like, God, are you real? Are you working? Or, like, I, there's something here that inside me that's empty. And then we're told in verse 31 that he has this man who's described, who was wearing these bright clothing stand before him, this uh, angelic experience. And he's told, he's assured, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Now, I want you guys to see here, Cornelius is not a believer. He's not a Christian, but he's seeking. He wants, he knows there's something more. And because of this, because he's seeking, God's responding to him. He's drawing Cornelius to himself. Cornelius isn't even a part of the family of God yet, but yet God is trying to say like, hey, I, I hear that you're looking. I want you to see that I'm going to respond. I think that this should give us confidence as those who are a part of the family of God. If God's willing to respond to the, this guy who's outside of the family and he's just barely seeking, how much more will God respond to his children? We can ask confidently. We can pray with just great authority because we're God's kids. God hears those who are seeking him. He hears those who are seeking him. Now God hears those who are seeking him, but the, the, the real kind of hold up and the real kind of log jam happens when we're seeking something from him and not seeking him. Right? Because this can kind of be uh, the distraction, the hindrance, the obstacle in our lives where we kind of end up interacting with God as a genie. We're like, here's what I want. And so why don't you get that for me? Making, making a wish in a sense. You see, God responds to those who are seeking him. If you're trying to get God, you know, to hook you up with like a sweet, you know, couple hundred thousand dollar car, it's probably not going to go down like that. But in the midst of that request, God looks at the motive of your heart, even if you're making such a foolish request. Lord, I want like, you know, a million dollars. God's still going to respond to you. He might say no to the million dollars, but there's a reason why you're asking for that. What do you want to do with that million dollars? Why do you want to have that money? What do you plan to do with it? As you drill deeper down into the why, why do you want that? What do you plan to do with it? Why are you seeking that? Ultimately, it comes down to, well, I want to have a lot of money so that way I can pay for all the things I need because I want, to, I need, I want happiness and when I buy things, it makes me happy. I want to be able to know that like, you know, I'm not going to be in debt ever and so I can have like, this, this security and safety. I can take care of other people. See, God will say no to your request about a million dollars, but he's going to say, I know you're seeking safety. I know you're seeking security. I know you're seeking happiness and joy, and none of those things that you're asking for are going to give it to you. But I'm going to show you how to get those other things. And he will begin to work in your life to shape you in a way to show you that the thing that you're really seeking, he's the only one that can provide it. And there's going to be a tension because you're going to be pulling one way, trying to go where you think you're going to get those things. And he's going to constantly be trying to redirect you to show you, like, this is the only spot. 
I'm the only one who can provide true joy, true happiness, true safety, true security, true satisfaction. He hears those who call out to him. And so because Cornelius has been seeking him, the Lord directs Cornelius to an opportunity to hear and receive the gospel. Verse 32, he tells him, hey, you are asking, you want to know what's up? Go to Joppa, get Simon, who's called Peter. Here's where he's at. I want you to get him, bring him back. He has got very specific instructions. God responds to him. Now, the last thing that Cornelius says is this. I've sent for you at once, tells Peter, and you've been kind enough to come. And then he, he just drops this bomb. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. He recognizes that, that it is God who is at work here. God's the one who's brought us together because I prayed and I asked and you had a vision and God has come from your crazy background so far away and he's shown you where I am that, I, that you should come and speak to me and he's spoken to me that I should go connect with you. It's clearly God who is at work here and God is here in this place and he wants to accomplish something. He's making this confession. And then he says, speak, because I know you have a message that we all need to hear. We're all here in the presence of God, and you have been commanded by the Lord to speak to us. Peter will be a herald of the gospel. His command is to proclaim the risen Christ. Jesus issued the command to all the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and in other places in the book of Acts as well. But their job is to specifically proclaim the risen Christ. Verse 34, stick with me. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So God has given Israel a special relationship with him, this special status. Uh, we looked at this when we studied the book of Exodus uh, in chapter 19 when they're at Mount Sinai. God creates this relationship with them, a special covenant. He says, you guys are my people. And back all the way in uh, Genesis chapter 12, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the nations of the earth uh, through his chosen people. Abraham receives this initial covenant with God in Genesis chapter 12. Here's, I'll read it for you. Here's the promise, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. So God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, to make you a great nation. He turns into the nation of Israel. All those people come from him. He says, and I'm going to bless you and make your name great. I'm going to prosper you, not for your own purposes, not for your own glory, not for your own worship, but so that you might bless others. You will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's Israel's job to put Christ on display, to reveal the glory of God to the nations. It's their job, their purpose. And so Peter, with this in mind, he's like, I, I get what's happening here. Truly, he says, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, this covenant promise is not the only thing that, that Peter has in mind. He has uh, some of the Old Testament prophets, uh, th their prophecies in mind as well, as we'll see in, in a moment. But I want to focus in here on this description of these, of, of kind of like what it takes. He leaves us with here in verse 35. He says, in every nation, anyone who fears him 
and does what is right is acceptable to him. But what does he mean by that? Because that could get like super confusing. It's just like basically like anybody from any background, like any religion, like all of the roads lead to God. That's not what he's claiming here. That's not, that's not, what, he's, that's not what he's getting at. The description here and the, and the thrust of this statement, this sentence, is dealing with the motive of the heart. It's dealing with the acceptability of an offer. Right? This is kind of like the this is kind of like the pre-qualification before before like you you go to like buy something. Right? There's oftentimes you like want to go out and like you'll get these uh, looking for like maybe a new vehicle and there's like all these ads like, oh, you're pre-qualified for like this amount, you know, like we will, even if you have horrible credit, like we automatically pre-qualify you for, you know, like this amount. And everyone's trying to like sell you and then, you know, you're like, okay, well, I'm, I, I got to go to my bank. They'll probably give me a better rate. And here's where you can kind of get, uh, you can kind of talk them down. They can look at your history and of your faithfulness and paying down your bills and they can look at other loans that you've taken out through them and they can say like, okay, like we think that you can handle this much and so you're pre-qualified for this amount. This is what's happening here. At, up to this point, Peter's saying, the Gentiles, you guys weren't even pre-qualified. Like you weren't even invited to get pre-qualified. He's like, but here, you're coming to a place now where you're on the same status as the Jewish people. You're pre-qualified. The Jewish people aren't automatically in because they don't automatically have a relationship with Jesus. They don't trust in Christ for salvation. But now the Gentiles are there. You are on the same status, he's telling them, as the Jews. The thrust in that statement is, is, is the motive of the heart. God's not concerned with the outward appearance. He doesn't care about the nationality, your ethnic background. He doesn't care uh, about any of those outward things. But it's the motive of the heart. Do you want to know him? All people are made clean in that sense, as God has said. They're made common. They're all acceptable to now have a relationship with him. The non-Jews, the Gentiles, they are acceptable to call on the name of Jesus just like the Jews are. So he's opened up these gates here. Verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, now he's going to handle this, the beginning of the preaching of the gospel. He says, look, it's first for the Jews. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Then he has this parenthetical note, he is Lord of all, which I love. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. He is Lord of all. He's like, Gentiles, you need to be reminded here that the gospel came to the Jews first. He was sent to Israel. And the good news that he brought was news of peace through Jesus Christ. That there was going to be no animosity between God and man because of the work that is accomplished through Jesus. And so both Jews and Gentiles who were separate, although Jews and Gentiles were two different people who were opposed and at war against each other. They could both be reconciled to God through Christ. And then now, as a result of that, because Jesus is the sinner, when they trust in Christ for salvation, they can have peace with one another because of what Jesus has done. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, uh, Ephesians 2 verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were once far off and peace to those who were near. So he's got those two categories, you who were really far away and you who were near. You were common. You were already there. You were pre-qualified. Both, you need to receive the gospel. 
who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is what he's getting at. This is what the gospel establishes. It's how it impacts the Jews, the Gentiles. It impacts you and I. It breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. It brings peace. And Peter says, this is what was accomplished. Now stick with me, verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. So Peter's like, look, you guys know the story. You guys know what happened. You're, you're alive. You guys know what happened with Jesus. You know the, his claims. You know his life. You know his ministry. And they were likely aware for probably two reasons. They're physically located where Jesus was at. So no doubt, like maybe they experienced some of it firsthand, or perhaps uh, they are also hearing of it, of the result of Philip, who we saw earlier in chapter 8, made his way up through this region proclaiming the gospel. So Jesus made his way to uh, Caesarea at certain points. These People likely also traveled down in the areas and regions where Jesus was. Philip probably contributed as well. He's like, look, you guys know the story. I don't need to, like, hammer on this for you. He says, and we are all witnesses, verse 39, of that he did in, uh, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And God raised him on the third day. So first he's like, I got to finish this. The, the, he's like, he's establishing like I was there personally. He's, this is my firsthand account of all that Jesus did. He's like, I witnessed them put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day, verse 41, uh, and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus shows up. He appears after his resurrection, after God raised him from the dead. Not to all people, we're told very specifically, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So what is, what is Peter getting at here? Because we know from the book of Acts that there was a point where Jesus appeared to like over 500 people at one time. So he, Jesus appeared to like a lot of people after his resurrection. But at one time, there was a point where it was like over 500 people in one spot. Why are they not considered to be witnesses? Well, they, they are in a sense but, but what Peter's speaking of here is that special commissioning that we find that Jesus gave them at the end of the book of Luke, the commissioning that we find in uh, the first chapter of Acts, that they would be his, his heralds. And the way that we kind of understand this and we get this filter is Peter specifically says, like, it's those who ate and drank with him, that we had this, this meal together after and then Jesus commissioned us. What, what he's getting at here is not so much that other people can't testify to him, but they have been uniquely and specifically commissioned. And Peter, especially, Jesus said, Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Now, some, uh, especially the Catholics, they believe that that means like he's like the Pope and he gets to let people in or out. That means is that Peter gets to let the Gentiles in. He's like, look, you get, you get to let the Gentiles in. You're the one. You get to unlock it for them. And here he is, unlocking it, letting them in. Here's the deal. These apostles are witnesses who were chosen by God to carry the message of the gospel into the world. And they've been commanded to preach and to testify. They were specifically commanded to communicate the truth of the gospel and to preach to people that Jesus is the one whom God appointed 
as the judge of the living and the dead. The one designated by God to judge the living and the dead. This is the claim that that Jesus made himself in John chapter 5, verse 22. The very words of Jesus. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. You see, the reason that Jesus becomes the judge here is to show his exalted status. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, living among us in our place, going to the cross, obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Right? This is what we find in Philippians 2 in the Christ hymn. And then the turn happens there in Philippians 2, but... God has raised him and has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And that at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the exaltation of Jesus is wrapped up in showing that his work is valid. The fact that Jesus is identified here as a judge is to show that he isn't lower than God. He's not someone who's like, okay, well, like, thanks for that. Now you're on the sidelines. But that it's ultimately Jesus who you need to trust in for salvation. He's drawing a line between the Old Testament covenant, the thoughts of the Jewish people where it's Yahweh and there is no Christ. There is no Jesus. There's no Trinity for the, for the Jewish people. But, he's, but, but Jesus makes this claim, and Peter makes this claim, that it's ultimately Jesus is the name that we trust in. Peter does, uh, he cites Joel chapter 2 uh, earlier, speaking of that same passage. Uh, and then also in Acts chapter 2, That's where Peter kind of incorporates it into his sermon. Okay, last verse. Stick with me. Verse 43. So Jesus is the judge, the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here's, this is uh, Peter's kind of close, or he's kind of getting to a close before he gets interrupted. Uh, His declaration is that the prophets have spoken of the forgiveness of sin of sin and what they've spoken of is that you have to trust in the name now peter has spent the book of acts establishing that that name is the name of jesus he said he establishes this uh through joel chapter 2 and uh, he speaks in acts chapter uh 2 and also stephen speaks of this trusting in the name of christ for salvation The prophets have spoken of, I'll, I'll give you, uh, there's a whole massive list of all the prophets who have spoken of forgiveness of sins in his name, but, but here's uh, one, I'll just give you one for time's sake. Jeremiah chapter 31, two verses, verse 33 and 34, Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now, this prophetic word is bound up in the promise of Israel's Messiah, that there's, there's this expectation of one who would come and fulfill this role. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of that, the one in that these divine promises, these prophetic words are, are found to, um, to land with, this forgiveness of sin can only be found through the name of Jesus. Lastly, I'll give you the, the verse from, one, one verse from Joel, because I can't help it. 
verse 32 of Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That name that Peter recognizes and he goes back to in Acts chapter 2 is the name of Jesus. And so Peter is coming to this place where he's helping Cornelius identify that the only way that you can have salvation, that you can have a true and fulfilling life is through by trusting in Christ for salvation and having his identity take over your own and becoming secondary to him. Both Cornelius needs to hear that as one who has been seeking, but Peter also needs to hear that it's only by trusting in the name of Christ and, and he needs to hear that the Gentiles are invited in that they have the opportunity for forgiveness of sin, not because of their ability to keep the law, but because Christ has kept the law. And so these two men making their journey from opposite spots end together in the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the one who saves, who forgives sins, and in who, whom you must trust to have a relationship with the Father, and have true and lasting satisfaction in life. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for all that you have shown us this morning. And we pray that you would uh, just allow this text to land in our heart. Um, in the exact spot that you would want to apply it. Lord, we don't just want to hear um, your word and understand it from an intellectual perspective, but we want to respond to what you're asking us to do, what you're calling us to do. And we want to obey you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Lord, as we are as we are working towards sanctification. Lord, it's often overwhelming to be at a spot where it just feels like failure is uh, too often an option, it's too easy. But we know, Lord, that that is something that happens when we try on our own. And so, Lord, would you help us as we make our way towards you Lord, we want to cry out with that, um, that same prayer that Cornelius had, that we're, we're seeking you and we want help. And so, Lord, would you respond to us and help us? Lord, when we are weak, Lord, would you be strong? And that you would, Lord, we ask specifically that you would show us, uh, that you would help us to realize that you are being strong so that way we don't miss it. We want to, to see that you're being strong in our weakness so we can celebrate and we can build our faith. We're so thankful that you will do all these things, Lord, according to your will. We love you. Amen. Amen.